Hello everyone and welcome to Queen's Speech. My name is Clive Simpson. And my name is Dennis Kavanagh. And this is the podcast where a couple of old... Hmm. <laughs> Have you got one, Dennis? <laughs> Shirtlifters? <laughs> I think we might have used that. Oh, uphill gardeners. <laughs> okay, brilliant. <laughs> okay, this is the podcast where a couple of uphill gardeners talk about the impact of gender ideology on same-sex attracted people. So, that means lesbians, gays, and, when the lights go on again, all over the world, bisexuals. <laughs> and we've got a packed program for you this morning. It's morning here in uh, London, bit of a chilly morning. There's been a cold snap. Mm -hmm. So there is actually frost on the ground in London. Don't know what it's like in the rest of the world. Um, don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What are we talking about this morning? We are talking about the... Uh, progress of the private members bill that went through the lords the debate on which we covered in a previous episode uh, so we're revisiting that we're going to talk about the chaos in the house of commons this week to acknowledge mm -hmm. it but the wider point which is about the bullying and intimidation of mps and we're going to link that to the way that uh, suicide statistics amongst the transgender community have been weaponized in order to encourage, urge. What's the word Keir Starmer used? Urged. urged he he yes. said urge. Yeah. Yes. To urge politicians to fall in line behind gender ideology. And we're also yeah. going to revisit uh, Lloyd Russell Moyle's conversion practices ban bill uh which is now entered its seventh draft is it that's correct yeah we had the seventh draft of it yesterday mm. and the reason we're revisiting that is because the debate is happening on march the first so that's, that's next right. friday yeah yeah that's the friday coming so uh, it's a good idea to, I think, revisit this, see if he has addressed any of the problems that have been brought to his attention by various interested parties. Too yeah. long, didn't read version. Probably not. So <laughs> <laughs> let's start off by talking about Lady Burt's uh, conversion practices ban bill. This was a bill that was introduced in the House of Lords, led to a very spirited uh, House of Lords debate in which so, there were some fantastic contributions from a whole range of Lords, from a whole range of parties, importantly, not just Conservatives, mm. but Conservatives, Labour, Liberal Democrats, and so on, and Independents as well. Mm. Um, but that now has gone into committee which means that as we said before private members bills very rarely get on the statute books but they are a useful way of focusing debate and bringing attention to issues so lady burt's bill has now gone into committee which means basically that uh, it can be um, scrutinized more and people can enter amendments 
And apparently there mm. have been some very interesting amendments added. <laughs> interesting in terms, in the, the meaning of kind of hilarious. Uh, mm, give, us a, give us a sample, Dennis. Um, well, what, what, what's happened now that this has gone into committee is that a series of lords have introduced wrecking amendments. Um, some are more serious than others. Special shout out to Lord Jackson of the Conservatives, who is just ripping the hell out of this <laughs> bill with really silly amendments. And one of them was, given that this bill is going to criminalise discussions at home... Um, he wants the act amended so that everyone has to keep a private record of the, all the discussions they have at home. <laughs> then there has to be a commission to monitor them. Then they have to present witnesses to those conversations. And he's just really taking the mick out of it. There's another one where he uses the term cisgender and he's just, he's obviously doing it to take the mick. Um, so he's being particularly funny with his wrecking amendments. Um, Baroness um, Hater of uh, Lord Jackson is Conservative. Baroness Hater of the Labour Party has just gone for the jugular. Because <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you remember, but Baroness Burt, who moved the bill, was forced at the end of the debate to say, oh, I concede this is a badly drafted bill, which is probably <laughs> not where you want to end up at the end of your private no, members. No. It's particularly funny, isn't it? That, uh, th these bills are often vanity projects. And I'm sure when Baroness Burt introduced this, she thought, oh, I'll get a bit of nice LGBTQ, WTF, BLT, LOL, points for this and in <laughs> fact as we know she just got slaughtered by the lords and ladies and as you've pointed out clive it was completely cross-party like baroness ludford from the liberal democrats who is, is a strong contender for speech of the debate it was word perfect just tore it to shreds lord blen mm -hmm. ben clather um, destroyed it, Lord Forsyth, and then Toby Young, Lord Young from the Labour Party, just ripped the hell out of it. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, Baroness Hater has put in amendments just saying, you know, replace gender identity in this bill with biological sex. It's like she's doing the really turfy yeah. amendments. So, the Lords are keeping us very entertained at the moment as this bill <laughs> slowly dies to sort of death by a thousand amendments. Mm. At committee stage, I, I suspect Baroness Burt is regretting the fact that this bill has progressed to committee because the Lords are making their displeasure very clear. And there is there is a website where you can see these amendments. Perhaps we'll include a link to it, Clive, because if you're, you know, sometimes it's difficult to keep your spirits up in the gender wars. But the, these Lords amendments will give you a good laugh. So, yes. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out that some of these amendments are not meant to be taken seriously. Lord oh, Jackson yeah. doesn't think that you should be keeping records of <laughs> private conversations in the house. He doesn't think that there should be surveillance on, on parents. He's putting that in to point out the absolute ludicrousness of yeah. uh, some of the proposals put forward. I quite like Lord Jackson. I, I, I do like people in the uh, gender debate who just refuse to take the other side seriously. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's needed. It's much needed. And, yeah. and that goes for all sides, frankly. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. totally. Let's, let's, not, uh, let's not dispirit ourselves by being so 
bloody serious all the time. But we don't know what will happen, quite honestly, do we? Because the Commons is in uproar at the moment. Yeah. There was a debate on uh, Thursday, I think it was, Wednesday? Wednesday, that was debating uh, uh, an SNP motion which was yeah. to call for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Okay. Yeah. Now, this was held on an opposition day. The uh, opposition parties each get a day in turn to, um, to put forward a motion for debate. These motions yeah. are not, these motions are not uh, something that the government has to act on but they are ways of raising an issue. And it was the SNP's turn. Now, the Speaker, unusually, what normally happens is op opposition put in their um, motion, amendments are suggested, the whole House debates it, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then the motion is voted. Then the motion is voted on. Whether it passes or not is largely immaterial because the government are not bound by these motions. They're not bound to act. So it should have been an opposition versus government day. Instead, yeah. the Speaker decided that Labour's amendment to the SNP motion would be heard before the motion was tabled. Yeah. Uh, what this effectively did, too long TLDR version, is that it wiped out the SNP's motion and it basically led to a vote on Labour's motion. This mm. is unprecedented, according to Parliamentary Convention, which is that on Opposition Day debates, the opposition party that's been called to table a motion, that is the motion that you vote on. So we had two opposition parties uh, versus each other and versus the government. The government had its own motion as well, which was to call for an immediate humanitarian pause. Basically, it descended into chaos because of the speaker making a decision which he has apologized for and indicated that he regretted because of the disorder that it caused. It led to yeah. uh, Tory MPs and some SNP MPs exiting the chamber. So the Labour amendment was passed on the nod because there were only Labour members and a few scattered others uh, left in the House of Commons. So this has yeah. called into question a number of things because it transpired, or it's been rumoured that, Keir Starmer had a private meeting with the Speaker of the House, which is something that opposition leaders and government leaders are are uh, able to do because Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House, keeps an open door policy. Yeah. Keir Starmer went in there and put some pressure on the Speaker. The substance of that pressure isn't really known. The rumour is that he put pressure on Sir Lindsay Hoyle to allow the Labour amendment to be debated, suggesting that after a general election, Labour might come for him. But there was another element to it, which is that Keir Starmer weaponised threats that his MPs have been getting from their constituents around this issue. So instead yeah. of what would be the 
to my mind, more reasonable uh, approach, which would be to condemn those threats and to talk about how those threats can be uh, reduced and how MP security can be uh, upgraded, if you like. Um, instead, this was used as a weapon to beat the speaker with. And this has then led to further accusations that extremists not in government, not elected officials, are now pretty much dictating what elected officials can do. I think I've got the substance yeah. of that right. I think you have. Um, yeah, not a very impressive day in Parliament. Um, I don't know what Keir Starmer thought he was doing, frankly. If Rishi Sunak had had a private meeting with the Speaker and the or the business of the House had been changed in favour of the Conservative Party, everyone would be going apoplectic, right? Mm -hmm. So let's remember what happened here was that Labour were on the precipice of a significant rebellion, right? Loads of, loads of Labour MPs were going to vote with the SNP. It was going to be very politically embarrassing for Sir Keir mm -hmm. Yeah. So what he's done, he's gone and had a private meeting. Uh, he says he didn't make threats of the kind that have been reported. Um, he said that he urged the Speaker to take the Labour amendment. But, I mean, if you're going to have a meeting with the Speaker asking him to change parliamentary procedure in your favour, or in your party's favour, I would have thought you damn well need an SNP representative and a Conservative representative in there. Mm, mm. Um, this all is a bit cosy. It's not as if the Labour Party don't have their own opposition days, right? They could have called their own motion. Now, mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think that this is extraordinary behaviour from Sir Keir Starmer. Now, look, you can argue, well, the SNP knew this was going to cause a split in the Labour Party and this is a bit dishonourable to do it given the gravity of this issue. But I don't know. I don't really buy that argument. Politics is a rough game. This is what opposition parties do. They do cause rebellions. The answer to that is to manage your own party or to be a strong leader and face down a rebellion, right? Mm. Um, it, 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 it is, I think, a, a pretty embarrassing episode in our, our parliament that this has happened. And <clears throat> as you pointed out, Clive, I do think it's improper to... Because I think Lindsay Hoyle is a, a decent man, and everyone in the House says that. Yeah, uh, Tories, Labour, Lib Dems, SNP. Yeah. I mean, SNP aren't particularly keen on him at the moment. But, you know, most people will tell you that Lindsay Hoyle is a decent bloke. And I, and I have no doubt that what Sir Keir Starmer said to him and the information and the intelligence he gets as Speaker about threats, because he has to be told about, you know, what's happening to MPs, I've no doubt that he genuinely was concerned for the safety of MPs. But th this is quite a Rubicon crossed, isn't it? If, we, if we're going yeah. to say that the business of the House has to be changed in, the, in this fashion because of outside threats. And I'm not the first, but I'm by no means the first person to opine in, in that way on it. it, it this, this, this is not good. It, it is not good to have democratic procedures that are responsive to threats of violence. This isn't the way we should be doing things. No, no. And it gives a green light to further intimidation 
of MPs by extremists, unfortunately. This rather overheated issue, which is getting a lot of um, attention in the press and which is causing some serious divisions amongst communities and amongst MPs, has now got even more of fuel added to the fire, if you like, because... Because the extremists have learned that bullying people works. You are quite, quite. Um, and I hope it is the last incident of this. I think I think the poor speaker's learnt a lot from this. And, and as you say, he's apologised. And I, th- I think there's going to be another debate. Um, I hope that is the right thing. But as you were saying at the beginning with the link to the suicide statistics, I, I'm almost... You, you know I'm such a Kemi fanboy. I'm, I'm always mm. tempted to quote Kemi Badenoch in committee um, when she said, we have to do better than this. You know, we, we yes. have to do better than this. We, we really do. This is a very, very serious issue. And it, it cannot descend into parliamentary shenanigans in, in, in this fashion. It, re- it really can't. And we need MPs as well. And I appreciate entirely that you know we've had two mps murdered right uh, mm, i appreciate entirely mm. th- that these threats are serious we've had another mp mike freer wasn't it stand down because his mm. his office was firebombed um but as I, as i've said before i do think we need to get a little bit more serious about security i mean labor party conference this year some joker got on stage and covered sir Keir starmer in glitter well, how yeah. good is how good is your is your security? What if that hadn't been glitter? What if that had been a, a noxious substance? What if he'd had a knife? We had a bloke um, at, at what is supposed to be government level security at the Conservative Party conference a couple of years before that get on stage and I mean it was quite funny. He handed Theresa May a P forty five in that. I don't know if you remember <laughs> that disastrous speech do, where, where all the letters were falling down behind her and she'd lost her voice and poor woman, she had a terrible time. But the serious point is that. Yes, I want. I do want a democracy where you can walk up and talk to MPs. But I do think we need to look again at this because if if MPs are getting to the point where they are being affected by threats, something's gone seriously wrong, and, and we have to get a little bit more serious about this. I'm afraid. Yes, and I remember also Angela Rayner at some meeting um, being yes. approached by I think it was uh, the same kind of people, ceasefire people at a Labour event, they were getting very close to her. She had almost no security around her. That's I've got... right. They were extremely close, and she looked terrified, and I don't blame mm, her. I don't know? blame her. And the thing is, I, I've seen footage that shows that this is actually extending into local government as well. Uh, Walsall oh, Council had a bunch of... Um... <coughs> That's another one for the edit. Bless you. <laughs> Warsaw Council also had a bunch of ceasefire people uh, invading the chamber and trying to intimidate and shout down uh, at local representatives. This is not yeah. good enough. This is not the way that we carry on in this country. I know British people have got this reputation for being cue formers and uh, extra polite, maybe slightly less polite than Canadians. Um, but this is the way our democracy works, is through that kind yeah. of turn-taking, fairness, 
not shouting people down, not calling them names, not going into local council meetings and creating a fuss so that people leave the meeting. This yeah. is not the way we do things. We don't turn up out en masse outside MPs' offices and shout and scream and make threats. We don't do that. Yeah. And unfortunately, this issue is bringing out some of the worst examples of that kind of behaviour. I mean, while this yeah. uh, debate was going on, the Palestine Solidarity campaign outside beamed onto the clock tower, the Elizabeth Tower, what's commonly known as Big Ben, beamed onto Big Ben from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free something that has been interpreted as a genocidal statement because it calls for the eradication of the state of Israel. And it's in yeah. the Hamas charter as well. There yeah. it was, beamed onto the clock tower, the Elizabeth Tower, I should call it, beamed onto the Elizabeth Tower. The Metropolitan Police standing aside and letting it happen because they've obviously been given instructions to maintain a low-key uh, hands-off approach to these demonstrations, which is just inflaming things even further. Yeah. Now, we could talk about this for the rest of the podcast, frankly, because this issue is completely um, symbolic of the way this entire issue has been weaponized against politicians. But to the broader point, and one that fits in with our overarching theme for this podcast is the way that politicians institutions and the like have been bullied by extremists to adopt extreme positions such as self-identification of gender uh, conversion practices bans um, banning conversion practices on gender identity yeah. One of the weapons that they've used, one of the weapons that they've used is the threat that uh, uh, trans teenagers will kill themselves if they're not offered gender affirming care. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because a recent study published in Child and Adolescent Mental Health from Finland kind of spikes the guns of the trans activist lobby who weaponize these suicide statistics. So I'd like to talk about that for a bit. Mm -hmm. So the title of the study is All Cause and Suicide Mortalities Among Adolescents and Young Adults Who Contacted Specialized Gender Identity Services in Finland from 1996 to 2019, a register study. So, as I say, this is a study from Finland looking at all cause and suicide mortalities of gender-referred adolescents, so those who've been referred to gender clinics for hormones and or surgery. There have been reports that there are increased mortality rates in adults diagnosed with gender dysphoria with rates of up to two to three times those of the general population, both in patients who proceeded to... Uh, gender referral and those whose treatment status was not disclosed. 
This has been um, associated with things like ischemic heart disease, cancer, external causes such as substance abuse, um, in some countries HIV infection, um, but primarily suicide. Mm. What this study found to cut to the chase, they, they, they picked a nationwide cohort of all under 23 year olds who were gender referred between 1996 to 2019. That was, uh, yeah. that was 2083 uh, gender referred adolescents and they compared those with 16,643 matched controls, so presumably not gender-referred adolescents. Yeah. There were 55 deaths in this study population. So that's over 1996 to 2019, that's 23 years. There were 55 deaths in the study population, 20 of which were suicides. Now, the next bit is something about uh, statistical models, which I don't know a great deal about um, because qualitative, uh, qualitative, uh, quantitative research isn't something that I understand very well. But they used something called a Cox regression model with hazard ratios. Um, what this is, is it's a statist uh, what I found out about this is it's a statistical method to calculate the hazard ratio of a given risk factor or pro predictor. So what they were is they were looking at all the risk factors um, and looking at how they affect the uh, likelihood of suicide. Okay. Yeah. What they found was that the proportion of suicides was higher in the gender referred group, but not by, by yeah. much, 0.3% versus 0.1% in the match controls. But what they found was that when specialist level psychiatric treatment was controlled for, neither all cause nor suicide mortality differed between the two groups. So their conclusion is that clinical gender dysphoria does not appear to be predictive of either all cause nor suicide mortality if you control for psychiatric treatment history. And the clinical implications that they've drawn from that is that it's, it's of utmost importance to identify and appropriately treat mental disorders in adolescents experiencing gender dysphoria to prevent suicide. Yeah which is something that the CAS review has recommended, is that we don't overshadow psychiatric diagnosis, impossible psychiatric diagnoses, by focusing on gender. Yeah. Something which so-called gender-affirming care threatens to do. Now, we've got, we've got examples of this from desisters and detransitioners. In this country, we know the case of uh, Ritchie, Mm. What's his surname? It's it's eluded me. Heron. It's Richie Heron. Yes, I'll cut that bit out. I'll start again. Now we know mm. this. We know this from cases of desisters and detransitioners in our country here in the UK. Uh, Richie Herons, for example, who it's come to light 
has uh, both uh, an autistic spectrum disorder and yep. has, uh, at the time that he was referred to the gender clinic, a history of depression and obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah. And his mental health problems and his possible um, autism was completely overshadowed by his gender identity to the point where he progressed onto hormones and to a full vaginoplasty which he regretted the very next day yeah, and which has caused absolutely interminable it seems insurmountable problems for him in the intervening years i mean he's doing quite well at the moment but uh, you can tell that there's a profound sense of grief that he's done this to himself there's another case that i saw uh, online from an organization from an organization called ND, ntd news which is uh, some yeah. kind of i don't quite know the uh, the uh, provenance of this but it doesn't matter the story is familiar there's a guy called richard anumeni who was known to have a long history of uh, psychotic episodes and mood disorder from childhood including yeah. many hospital admissions he was on a whole raft of medications or had been on a whole raft of medications since he was about seven years old this he has traced to emotional and physical abuse from parents and sexual abuse from his older brother who subsequently killed himself he says that there was a desire to distance himself from his maleness due to the abuse that he'd received from male figures in his life. He, he ended up going to the gender service in Sacramento, California. He says his treatment was, was rushed towards affirming his gender identity without taking into account his uh, mental health problems, his uh, sexuality even. He's a he's yeah. a heterosexual man. He ended up yeah. having vaginoplasty, which has left him, of course, with no sexual function, many complications, including continued bleeding, repeated urinary tract infections, to the point where he's now incontinent and has oh, to wear gosh. a nappy. Jesus. Yeah. And here we have this Finnish study telling us that a rush to gender affirmation is actually um, is not beneficial to gender distressed young people and that yeah. actually what needs to be explored are mental health conditions first because if yeah. you remove those psychiatric comorbidities then the likelihood of suicide actually reduces so this is this is further evidence for a watchful waiting approach and for structured and comprehensive assessment before rushing in to affirming someone's gender. I, I just hope trans activists are pleased with themselves, Clive. You know, they let us remember that weaponizing or deploying suicide is a new thing. All right. There yes. was a time where if you dared to do that, Samaritans would be jumping down your throat. All right, because they would be saying, as I think we've discussed before, that if you spread the message that suicide is referable to one cause, that is very unhealthy 
and very unhelpful because it is a very, very complex phenomenon. Mm. And doing that and saying this is the issue, this is what has caused the suicide is profoundly unhelpful. It also has a very bad habit of clustering. If you get a suicide in any community, like a, like a school, for example, people are talking about it. Um, it, it uh, there's a whole movie about this, isn't there? Heather's is a satire on this uh, mm. and lots of other things. Um, you, that, you, that, you, that you get clusters of it. So what has happened in the gender debate is pretty unprecedented, really. A, a, an extremist, bonkers, dualist, you know, mind-body mismatch theory, which which really is just a retelling of demonic possession, but the other mm-hmm. way round. That that's all gender identity ideology really is when you strip it back. Um, this cult-like political force has broken all the rules of civilized society and it's particularly broken this rule and it has said to perfectly decent nice very confused parents you know do you want a live daughter or a dead son and things like that and Mm. what this study shows is that that is an irresponsible and wicked thing to say to people it, it, it is a gun to a head. It is emotional blackmail of the worst kind. And the people who have done this and who have deployed this should be ashamed of themselves. Because, I, you know, to me, this was always obvious. We did not have, right, a, a massive epidemic of teenage suicides because of gender in the 80s or the 90s, right? Mm, we, ju- we just mm. didn't have that. This claim has always been palpably false for that reason. And it, it is not just, you know, wackos with anime avatars and pronouns and the rest of it on the internet saying this. There are some, I regret to say, notionally LGBTWTF lol charities who have engaged in this and who mm, have spread yeah. this this message. And and you will know better than I, Clive, messing around with public health messaging, and you you know, we we've had a gut full of this with HIV, haven't we? If you if you mess mm. around with what you tell the public, that will have pretty serious real world effects. Um, I'm glad that this study has come out, but my goodness me, was this, you know, there's been some pretty awful, wicked things happened. Um, you know, I think of, I don't know, massive, great, meaty, sweaty male rapists in female prisons, for example. But, th- but this is up there with them to, to do this to parents to do and to do it to a generation of children to put the idea in their head. This is a cruel, cruel ideology for doing that, for weaponizing this. Um, Absolutely. It's made parents afraid. It's made children afraid. I was watching the um, sort of clips from the proceedings of uh, a debate in one of the states, I can't remember which one, in the USA, where they're proposing to ban gender-affirming care from concerned parents and uh, one of them was a mother who was talking about her seven-year-old 
And the way she talked about her seven-year-old's behaviour struck me as just random childhood recklessness, like walking out into yeah. traffic, the kinds of things that parents are supposed to control. Yeah. She was interpreting this as suicidal behaviour on the part of a seven-year-old. Suicide is incredibly rare amongst seven-year-olds. Incredibly rare. And for this, and like you say, there was no mass suicide before gender-affirming care came along. In fact, the rates of suicide that are, um, that are uh, published don't reflect any other minority experience. There was I, no... I just can't believe that, Clive. Seven, I hadn't heard this one. Seven years of age. Talk about fitting the facts to your own theory. Mm -hmm. Bloody hell. Sorry to interrupt, but I'm just aghast at that. Well, exactly. And this idea that, that, that trans teenagers are, or, or trans children and trans teenagers are constantly on the brink of suicide is not borne out by other minorities who've had sim similar or even worse experiences. So there was yeah. no massive spike of suicide during the AIDS years amongst the gay male community. There wasn't even yeah. a massive spike in suicides among the Jewish communities in the Third Reich, for heaven's sake. Yeah. When they were f yeah. really were facing uh, massive persecution, deportations, ghettoizations, and ultimately, you know, the final solution. There yeah. wasn't a... There wasn't a peak, a massive peak in suicides amongst that uh, particular group of people. But we're meant to accept that trans teenagers are uniquely, amongst all other minority groups, are uniquely prone to suicide because of not receiving gender-affirming care. Well, this study wipes that out. And that the reason for an over-representation of suicidal ideation or maybe even attempted suicide amongst this population is because of other psychiatric morbidities. Yeah, which which anyone could have told you who has even passing familiarity with this. You know, I mean, Hillary Cass, OBE, is 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 an autism specialist, right? She knows what she's talking about, and you know, when when she describes in the interim report the comorbidities. Or when Hannah Barnes does in her fantastic book *Time to Think*, they are not surprising, you know. No, no. Autism, de depression, um, you know. I, 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 I mean, you've you've cited OCD there with with Richie. You hear that quite a lot with with these kids because it's a manifestation of anxiety, isn't it? Um, mm. And Sinead Watson speaks about being in a deep state of mental trauma. Um, and, and, and says very powerfully and very movingly, you know, I wish I just had some therapy. Uh, uh, and that would be at the Sandyford Clinic up in, up in Scotland. Mm. This is obvious. It is obvious that we are dealing with deeply, deeply troubled kids. And I, and I regret to say one of the reasons they are troubled is they've been given this problem. Right. They've been told yes. they have a gender identity. They've been told it's not the world that needs to change to accept you um or, or that you need to change to accept yourself it's your body that needs to change and mm, mm. 
I think Hilary Cass described as diagnostic overshadowing. Um, and that, that, of course, is the clinical term for children being told that gender is a magic bullet that will fix all their problems. And, and that is a, yeah. a wicked thing to say to them, uh, particularly when you look at the level of understanding of these children. And I think of that footage of Polly Carmichael dealing with a little boy who, who's very young, um, who, who said, well, after I get all these operations, I want to become a mother. And, you know, this is a boy, for goodness sake, right? Um, she doesn't correct him. She doesn't say to no. him, actually, that is impossible. That, that, that is a little boy who genuinely believes that he can change sex. I have heard harrowing accounts of girls who are led to believe that breasts will grow back. And, you know, people laugh at this sort of thing and say, oh, how could anyone be so stupid? These are children. Right? They're children, for goodness sake. Children believe what they are told. They particularly believe what authority figures tell them. And for, you know, for the other side to sneer at that now or say, oh, well, you can just get, you know, you can just have fake boobs or something. It's like, do you, you know, try to, to try talking to a woman who's had a double mastectomy, right? Try talking about what that looks like in terms of pain and complications and all the rest of it. It is not a picnic, right? And mm. it, oh. and of oh, course, it, it, it destroys... Calm down, Dennis. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> and of course, as we know, it destroys any chance. You can have silicon uh, implants put in, but those silicon implants are not going to lactate so you can feed your child. That's if yeah. you have any reproductive function left. Um, yeah. Well, that's all right, because we've got men doing that this week, which well, is just so, so ghoulish. I, I don't even know what to say about it, other than to say that I did enjoy Helen Joyce bantering with um, Sally Hines. And um, that, that, that is an exchange worth looking up on Twitter if you haven't seen it. <laughs> OK. The, the other thing, of course, that this study suggests is that it isn't external factors like societal disapproval that make gender dysphoric children and young people unhappy it's that young people and chil children and young people who are unhappy go to gender dysphoria as an explanation for it yeah and that's why we need the kind of careful close comprehensive assessment that the cast review suggests and which unfortunately is something that the architects of various conversion therapy, conversion practices bans, haven't taken into account. And this is, of course, relevant to friend of the podcast, Lloyd Russell Moyles, conversion practices ban private members bill, which is going to be debated next Friday. How is that going for him, Dennis? Well... It's um, it, it, there are still really very big problems with this as a piece of legislation. I I've, I published um, on my Substack, and I know we're going to link to it last night. Um, a fairly dry, if I'm honest, but very detailed legal analysis of of the bill, and I've, I've come at it from my criminal law background. And, ju and just tried to bring what I can to this debate, which is an analysis of how this would work as a criminal offence. And my conclusion, d despite best efforts to try to improve this bill, my conclusion is that it doesn't work at all as a criminal offence and that it is 
um, highly vulnerable to a human rights challenge as being incompatible with the European Convention on Human Rights. I, I should caveat all that by saying that... I don't think I've spoken to someone in the gender debate who hasn't met with Lloyd. He has made serious and I think genuine attempts to listen to people outside of the circle that he might normally listen to. And to be fair to him, his bill um, really does make efforts to deal with our concerns and contains at clause one, subsection two, a number of so-called carve-outs, which are uh, real attempts to deal with the problems that we've raised. It is an mm. infinitely superior piece of legislation. It's, st it's still bad, though. Um, but certainly it is better than the Scottish or the House of Lords version. But we, we've got some real problems with this, I'm afraid. In, in the first place, the offence itself is... It, it is far too easy to commit it because you can commit it by a single act of suppression... Now, if I look for the meaning of the word suppression in law, um, I'm not going to find one other than in the Scottish Government consultation. Now, you've got to be a little careful with that because it, it is just the opinion of the Scottish Government. But the, the, this bill does not define what the word suppress means. And the Scottish Government say that suppress could mean telling someone you can't wear those clothes. So... We, we are back to our example of a, a parent saying to an autistic girl, I don't want you wearing a breast binder because that will hurt you. Well, arguably, under Lloyd's bill, you are suppressing there a transgender identity. That brings me to the next problem. The terms transgender identity and even sexual orientation are not defined. You might say, oh, Dennis, everyone knows what sexual orientation is. Mm -hmm. And I would say, au contraire, because we've got a case going to the Supreme Court, which we discussed last week, that is about the definition of the word sex in law. Um, so we don't have a settled definition of that presently. And if Lady Haldane is right, sexual orientation means sex as modified by a gender recognition certificate. Um, mm. It's more the term that's highly problematic, though, is transgender identity, which which is really just a different way of saying gender identity. And you know, it's one thing to muck around in civil law on on this, although it can do tremendous damage there, I think. But it is quite another to put that into a criminal statute, because what are you going to do when a jury says to you, "Well, what does this mean?" What are you going to do when a juror says to you, "I don't believe in gender identity." Are we going to end up in the perverse position and absurd position, I would go so far as to say, that you can stand up and be Maya Fostata in a civil court and say, I don't believe gender identity actually exists. I don't think people have gender identities. So you, and that be a protected characteristic in front of Mr. Justice Chowdhury in the Employment mm -hmm. Appeal Tribunal. But you can't do the same in a criminal court because no. there's an act of parliament that says it exists. So... What what have we got? Criminal courts fundamentally change in character. They start to become political because the prosecution will be duty-bound to bring a case saying this concept exists. What do the defence do? Do they say mm. oh, the, def the defence are, are stuck with quite a Hobson's choice here? Either the defence can argue the point 
and say, I don't know, call Helen Joyce and Cathstock to give evidence and say, we don't believe this exists. Well, then how is the judge directing the jury? The jury are then left with the political question of does transgender identity exist or not? We don't leave political questions to juries about no. contested topics. What on earth is the judge meant to do when the jury say, well, the prosecution have to prove the case so we are sure? Um, how can we be sure that this exists? How do we, mm. what do we do when we're deciding between Helen Joyce's evidence and the evidence of the teenager who says that not wearing a breast binder was suppressing their identity? Why is that even in a court in the first, it's not like we don't have other things to do in criminal courts, right? We're kind of busy. We've kind of got mm. a backlog. Um, so the the entire offence is, I, I, I'm afraid to say, and I and I, I don't think this is Lloyd's fault. I, I just think that all of this legislation has this problem. I mean, the Scottish government consultation says that identity, and it uses the term gender identity rather than transgender identity, but that that mm. is a distinction without a difference, really. Um, it says it's a self-reported phenomenon. Well, if it's self-reported, the only person that can give evidence of it is the victim. What do you do if a victim lies? How do I disprove their claim to have an identity as defence counsel? Um, I, might, I, I might just underline all that by saying the minute a court becomes political and the minute you can't test the evidence, you have breached Article 6 of... Um, the human as uh, the European Convention of Human Rights that is the right to a fair trial and part of the right to a fair trial under I think it's article 6 subsection 3 is um, a, a right to an independent tribunal and to test the evidence we've also got an article 7 problem here no punishment without law um, you know there is potential here isn't there for someone to to be punished for what is in effect a religious this is, this is a religious court. It's like a church court, this, isn't it? Mm, Saying you mm. have to believe in something. So that's the fundamental problem. Um, the offence is, is wide and uh, and dangerously wide, and, and terms are just left undefined, which is highly undesirable in a criminal statute. And what are we going to do? Just hand the problem over to the High Court? We shouldn't be doing that as, as legislators, right? Ju judges are not there to make law. And I wouldn't be surprised if a judge of the High Court just said, actually, I'm not going to do this. You you have a duty to define this nebulous uh, term, and I'm just going to declare this is incompatible with human rights. Now, that brings me to Lloyd's attempts to deal with our objections, and those are found in Clause 1, Subsection 2, and I've, I've described them as the carve-outs, but they are, in effect statutory defences and I'm afraid there's a problem with each and every one of them um, I, I, we spoke last week Clive you looked at the health practitioners defence mm. which when I came to analyse it is absurdly complex and requires a defendant to prove three things um, which I won't, I won't bore everyone with now but suffice it to say that the carve-outs do this a lot they require defendants to prove things so in the parental carve-out which is limited to someone exercising parental responsibility, which which is dangerous because um, not everyone who looks after a kid has parental responsibility under the Children Act for reasons I won't bore you with. And the exercise of parental responsibility, Sarah Fillimore described, who I, I sought advice from on this family law point, and I'm very grateful to her for this, um, she described it as a seesaw with gillic competence. So the more mm. a child looks after themselves 
the less you are exercising parental responsibility. So for a 16-year-old, you know, they're going to be able to, you know, get their own breakfast and go out with their mates. And, that, you know, you're not going to be exercising parental responsibility very much. But that also contains a requirement that a defendant not only show that they were exercising PR, so they've got to show that, they also have to show that the welfare of the child was their paramount consideration. That is a copy-paste from the Children Act of 1989, and it is absurd to require a defendant to prove that, because mm. what they've copy-pasted there is guidance to family courts. The family court must always have the welfare of the child as its paramount consideration. That's a sensible thing for a court to have in mind, and to be their guiding principle, but imagine having to try to prove that as a defendant. And sorry, I'll stop the law lecture in a moment. But 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 I will. But I will say this: in, in a criminal court, the burden of proof rests with the prosecution, and the prosecution must prove their case so that a jury is sure. A defendant is presumed innocent at law, and they do not have to prove a thing. They can stay silent through the entire trial if they wish, and say to the prosecution, "You bring the case." Uh, you prove it. It is highly unusual to require defendants to prove things. That is called in law a reverse burden. We do have them occasionally, so without lawful excuse offences, so offensive weapons, for example. You, you know, a defendant can uh, be acquitted of the possession of offensive weapon if they showed that they had it with them for some good reason or other lawful I I excuse. Or I may, I may be confusing that with bla bla uh, bladed article offence, but it doesn't matter particularly. The point is that is a reverse burden. Reverse burdens are pretty much despised by the European court because it, 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 it sails very close to the wind. Article 6 contains the presumption of innocence, right? Sails very close to the presumption of innocence, mm. this sort of thing. And, you know, it's one thing to say to someone who's carrying a knife, <clears throat> you show me you've got a lawful reason for carrying it. And we have case law on this. Um, I think in the Sikh religion there is a, a requirement ceremonially for men to carry knives. I don't know if that extends to women, actually. I must ask Sirich. She's Sikh, she'll know. Um, but in but in any event, it's one thing, isn't it, when someone's got a knife on them to put a reverse burden. It's quite another thing to put a reverse burden on a parent who says to their autistic daughter, I don't want you wearing a breastbinder. It's quite a mm. thing to drag them to court and say, you prove, you prove. And a reverse burden on the defendant is always to the civil standard, the balance of probabilities. So the defendant, you prove it is more likely than not that your paramount consideration was um, the child's welfare. Well, how does that play out at trial? What if the prosecution can show it was a consideration, but not the paramount one? Are the prosecution really going to cross-examine parents as to their considerations? It is, it is, I'm afraid to say, and I repeat, despite Lloyd's best efforts to square the circle, this, this is just such a dangerous area to legislate in. As Lord Forsyth and Lord Blankleather uh, and, and Baroness Ludford and Baroness Hayter pointed out in their excellent speeches in the Lords. And the, the, the other point I would make is is there, there's a lot of nasty stuff going on in this, this bill. I, I, you know, I'm not a particularly sort of religious person, but 
there is, I'm afraid, the elision of church and state because the religious statutory defence says you you can you can say to the you have a defence if it's part of your religious practice unless you were in any event committing the conversion therapy offence. That is nonsensical because it's not a statutory defence. Then, right? It's it's just saying once you've committed it, you've committed it, and if you go to a church as benign as the Church of England and say, I am a homosexual, you will be told our church teaching is you should not act on those urges and you should be celibate. Now, you know, mm, yeah. <laughs> on one level, who cares what the Church of England says? But on another level, that, that is the teachings of that church and that would be a conversion practice because you'd be suppressing a sexual orientation because the Scottish government tells us that suppression includes saying something that prevents the manifestation or well, the manifestation of a sexual orientation is having sex. So if you say and, to someone, do not have sex, bang. And suggesting apparently in Victoria, as we discussed last time, suggesting in prayers that people aren't perfect and need, <laughs> and need to be forgiven their sins could be outlawed. And I guess the other thing that comes to mind is what counts as a religion as well. How mm. do you do this? To, you have to define what religious... Uh, what religion's um, teachings you're going to accept. And there is a yeah. plethora of religions in the world, including, you know, some very dodgy cults. Which are yeah. you going to class as a religion? Which are you not going to class as a religion, but something else? This is madness. And it sounds yeah. to me like, from what you're saying, that this entire bill is nothing but a dog's dinner. And it really I, should I, be just thrown in the bin. <laughs> I'm afraid that's my conclusion because I do not see if this gets into committee, which it might. MPs don't want to be seen to be voting against this, I understand, right? But mm. I don't see how, how if this gets into committee, one deals with these absolutely fundamental problems. I, what are we going to do in committee? Someone's going to define the core, the core terms of the bill. And you'll be sick of me saying this, Clive, but I, I do remind people... This is a criminal statute, right? Mm. It has to have definitions. If I prosecute a GBH, right, the first thing I do is I explain what GBH is to a jury. And I say to them that grievous bodily harm in law simply means really serious harm. And it needs no further definition. Mm. Right? And that's what it means. And I w Or I would say a wound, <coughs> excuse me, in law has to be a breach of the dermis and epidermis. That's what it means. Mm. A wound, so a graze couldn't be a wound unless unless blood was drawn. But you see, don't you, that each, every criminal offence has really precise definitions. I'll give you another of example. Course. A robbery is a theft plus violence, but the violence has to be at the time or, or prior to the theft, and it has to be in order to achieve the theft. So every single criminal offence has really, really, really precise definitions. And those are just the simple ones, right? Mm. There are there are multi-part offences like insider trading or entering to arrangement to conceal the proceeds of crime that would have seven or eight things that you had to define. So the idea of sticking something in front of a jury where there's just no definition at all, <laughs> this is crazy. I'm it's afraid. crazy it's talk. Absolutely crazy. And I think it, I think it uh, I think the um, timidity of the penalties demonstrates how yeah. unclear the whole thing is.
frankly. We're told, yeah. we're sold the idea that conversion therapy is a form of torture and that it causes enormous distress and psychological and physical harm to people who are put through it. But yeah. you can get away with a fine. It's an unlimited fine, so yeah. that could be any amount. But yeah. if it really is a form of torture, this is yeah. not this is this is a pretty lame response to it is to say, well, you know, fifty quid and you're clear. I mean, I think that just that just demonstrates to me that uh, they're not that sure. They're not that sure about this. Do you know what I mean? They're not they're not so sure that they yeah. can define this adequately so that you could in, incur, a, you know, a more serious criminal penalty. Yeah, I mean, I've got mixed feelings about that because on the one hand, I think, well, if we do end up with a dog's dinner piece of legislation, which I really hope we don't, but if we do end up with that, I would rather that people didn't go to jail for it and it just gathered mm. dust on the statute books. But I, I take your point. It is, it is very difficult to reconcile that with um with the claims that are made because when you listen to mps or you know some of the nutters who are pushing this legislation they, they wheel out these stories from 50 years ago about you know this is a, a electrodes or corrective rape or this that and the other right so it is it's very difficult to square or to, or to reconcile that you know high flute and grandiose rhetoric with with what is what is here um and look I, I just think that's the problem with these bills. These bills are basically crazy. You've mentioned the Victorian example. Uh, are we really going to have a piece of legislation that, that where a minister tells a, a church what they can and can't say, the regulation of public mm. prayer? And I'm, I want to make clear, Jane Ozan, I think her name is, is a character who is pushing this legislation. She has said in terms, Baroness Foster... Arlene Foster in the House of Lords quoted her. She has said in terms, yes, I do want public prayer regulated. I'm sorry, but that is mad. <laughs> I don't agree with all sorts of religious teachings. They're not they're not particularly friendly to us gays as a rule, right? Mm, yeah. But I, I do not want ministers of the crown telling people what they can and can't believe because that is totalitarian. Of course I'm it is. I'm afraid it is. You can't have officers of the law descending on all saints in some little village somewhere saying that we yeah, heard, you, we've heard that your vicar has suggested that we should repent our sins. This is conversion therapy. This is a conversion yeah. practice. It's like, oh, for I just God's got an image of a doddery old vicar being led away in handcuffs <laughs> after after Stonewall re-education to be tried in front of the local magistrates for conversion therapy. Yes, he I, has I to attend diversity training provided oh, by okay. gendered intelligence. No, about... provided by Garden Court Chambers. <laughs> by by. Actually, oh, their new non-binary barrister. Yeah, I saw, I saw Maya Forstater, and I think Naomi Cunningham attended that. And did, did you see Naomi asked the best question? Because they don't say gender critical anymore, because they, 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 they now describe us all as anti-trans. That's their mm -hmm. new thing. I think Pink News started that trend. Oh, so yeah. Naomi Cunningham, who is a great cross-examiner, came up with just the most fantastic question. She said, 
uh, and I think she asked it to the panel. She said, um, can you please uh, identify for me one gender critical view that is not anti-trans in your point in your point of view <laughs> knowing that the premise of the question is of course that you know gender critical views are a protected characteristic anyway long story short they couldn't answer that one <laughs> what a surprise what a great. surprise she's such a good cross-examiner great question <laughs> i want her to i think she's done that in court actually i think she's done that to a few people in court or so so i've been told but i need to go and look that up because i want to i want to i want to go and see cunningham's greatest hits <laughs> well okay some of our religious visit religious listeners and i'm sure that there are some if this bill passes make sure you're not asking god to forgive you your sins because you are perfect just the way you are which kind of which kind of suggests you don't need your religion in the first place uh what a load of old nonsense. Are. What a load of old nonsense. We don't know who the leader of the opposition is going to be in the next week, though, because this row is continuing to boil on. So we could have a whole new Labour leader come the time, time for the general election. And who knows, maybe even uh, Lloyd's uh, debate on his private members bill might need to be shelved in order to accommodate yet another debate on a ceasefire in Gaza. So we yeah. don't know where this is going to go. Lloyd doesn't know where this is going to go. There may well be a debate on it in the chamber. The likelihood of it entering into law is very low because private members' bills don't tend to do that. But it's worth focusing minds on, the, uh, on how difficult it is to create a conversion practices ban when it comes to gender identity. And I think it's been very instructive for people like Lloyd to see the complexities involved because he is yeah. one of the people, doubtless, who has been criticising the government for dragging their heels on this. So, uh, yeah. there you and, go. And, you know, I, I think you're right. and I, I, I do wish, though... That, it does occur to me, you know, if Kemi Badenoch, of all people, who's got a brain the size of a planet, if she can't, you know, square the circle on this, um, you know, that tells you something. And I think you're absolutely mm. right. I think people are getting a bit of a crash course in just how difficult it is to legislate in a way that is is responsible and sensible. Not, you know, not something that's ever troubled the Scottish government. I know with their draft, but anyway, that's for a few, that's, that's for a future episode. That's that's the next legal analysis I'm going to do once this one's over. So. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen up there as well? Come the general election, I mean. There may well be murder tents outside Humza Yusuf's <laughs> house <Yeah>. as well, <laughs> looking for that camper yeah. van. <laughs> no, quite. quite. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. What a palaver. Well, I think we're coming, well, we're way over the one hour. Probably be less oh, than that once, not, I've yeah. once I've edited. Um I think we've done our duty for today, Mr. Dennis. And, I uh, think we have. Yes. So thank you for that. Uh, thank you for your co-hosting abilities. Thank you to our listeners and subscribers. Keep listening, keep subscribing, particularly keep subscribing because it is your subscriptions that help to keep this whole show on the road. 
We will see you all next week for our regular episode. And um, have a lovely weekend. Have a lovely weekend, Mr. Dennis. Yeah, uh, you too. Uh, take care. It's been, it's, it's been lovely. As always, it's been a pleasure. Cheerio, everyone. Bye.